Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Ian. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I've been better. I mean, the Raptors are doing great, so that's one positive in my life as a Toronto sports fan. And Mike Babcock is still the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, so that's a bit bit less positive in Leafs Nation. Well, from I guess from your perspective, yes, maybe because I think you from have a lot to of perspectives, about, to be honest, you you have to you have to write about this team a lot. I just get to go to school and study, and write a bunch of exams and dissect a bunch of gross things. So we're so, both living a painful existence right now. <laughs> yes, but I did see. Ottawa play last week. Speaking of painful existences. And might I say, Thomas Shabbat is spectacular to watch live. Also, Connor Brown. I mean, I know He's that we so joked about good. you having the 25-goal the thing, and I still think that's a bit ridiculous, but good for him. I'm happy that he's actually producing and some offense. And Jean-Gabriel Pajot with a trick. He's his trade value is just skyrocketing. We, right we need now. to he's, stop talking doing, about the Ottawa Senators. We need he's, to stop. He's doing that. the opposite of Tyson Berry. He's skyrocketing and Tyson Berry is plummeting. Oh, he's and playing speaking well. <laughs> of that, did you do you think anything to do with Tyson Berry's plummet has is related to his coach? It's it's highly possible, and I know that's going to be the topic that we uh, talk about today. So, coaching in the NHL, really in any sport. It's something that's not the easiest to quantify, but I know that when I'm looking at whether or not a coach has done a good job with a roster, I look at the talent on the roster, I look at how should this team be playing, and how are they playing. And if there's a big chasm between you know their results and the talent on their team, I tend to go, okay, that's either a coach doing a, a great job of just dragging a, a bad team to pretty good results, resulting them overperforming, or... They're significantly underperforming. And you look at, you know, Mike Johnston with the Pittsburgh Penguins a few years ago, Mike Yo with the St. Louis Blues, just teams that are not performing as well as they should be. We don't want to make this a Leafs podcast, but I would make the argument that they're a textbook example this year. So before we get into like the coaching impact in hockey, across all sports, favorite coach because of how positive their coaching impact is. We'll talk about like the gods of coaching impact towards the end once we cover the hockey part of it. But just in your heart, who is the guy where it's like if your team hires this guy, you know that you're he's going to get the best out of your team. I've got two that come to mind for me, Greg Popovich and Bill Belichick in different sports. So I mean Greg Popovich, the Spurs coach over the last what 20 years, He's a god. We will talk about him. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll I'll dive into it into a bit more detail later on. I'll explain the ins and outs for people who don't understand basketball that that well. That's totally fine. But he's always got great results. And even over the last couple of years, his roster has been kind of trash. And he's dragged them to really strong regular seasons. And Bill Belichick, I hate him. I'm a Colts fan. I hate Bill Belichick. But... Like that's just a factory in in New England. It's just a system. They keep bringing in different players, newer players, older players, younger. It doesn't matter. I love that it's like New England drafts someone, and it's like congratulations to this player on having a successful NHL or NFL career. Yeah, and you know, like, it's like one of those. Ugh. Some years they'll have you know a couple of tight ends, and they'll find a way to make it work. Other years they'll have a couple of running backs. They'll find a way to make it work. He just he adapts the system so well to the talent that he has, and he's just he's a mastermind. And I hate him. wow seems very very realistic i mean for me and we'll get into this later i like pep guardiola and um jürgen klopp i think are probably my favorites we're just not going to talk about hockey coaches on this podcast (laughs) yeah and then i mean you pinkus in my eyes i mean he's brought Bayern. i think they had a seven trophy season they had at one point while he was the manager they held every soccer trophy like club wise in the world that they could possibly have held they were that good how about nhl over the last let's call it 20 years who is your coach that you've got a roster that you want to contend for the next two or three seasons who do you want coaching that roster or does it depend on the kind of roster that you have I think it kind of depends I mean probably I feel like mm, Mike Sullivan is up there 
Really like what he's done in Pittsburgh. Oh, I love what he's done. Joel Quenville is unquestionably up there. See, I would I would push back a bit on that over the last couple of years. But well, I again, think they also took some of the toy. Like it's very uh, apparent that he wanted Yelmerson because Yelmerson is kind of a player where you can play like any style, and he's very good at it. And they kind of didn't give him a whole lot the last few years in Chicago. Um, I, yeah, those are kind of two for me. I'm trying to think of, oh, I like Ralph Kruger too. I, I found that, uh, Bruce Boudreaux, I feel like every team he oh, goes to, yes. or, or Barry Trotz, they just, they always make their team so much better. Uh, I really well, like Bruce Islanders Cassidy. With Trotz. Yeah, I know the, the, <laughs> what he's been able to do. I think that's, that's a good transition into what can a coach do at the NHL level, I know that it's not always easy to impact offense. For example, let's say you have a roster with absolutely no talent. It's hard to turn that team into an offensive juggernaut, right? Because yeah, you can't just be like, hey, uh, now you're all of a sudden going to be a 40-goal scorer. That doesn't happen. But <laughs> you can have a team that doesn't have much talent, but you can get them to play structurally sound hockey where they don't give up anything through the middle of the ice. They don't give anything up in the slot. They make life a lot easier on their goaltender. And I think that that's something... That has happened extremely well in Long Island with Barry Trotz. You can look at Dallas over the last few years. I think they've done a really good job of it. I think that's a big element of coaching. And when you look at some way of quantifying, I know Micah Blake McCurdy has his, uh, his model where he tries to account for it statistically. He finds that uh, offensive impact isn't something that coaches can control to an extreme degree. They can control it a little bit. But the biggest impact from coaches tends to come on the defensive side of the puck. Right. I think with offensive impact you probably and I think that this might be um something that's an issue in Toronto is if you have star players so somebody like a Sidney Crosby or even someone like a Sebastian Ajo or um a like a well Alexander Barkov is a little bit of a different animal but if you have players with supreme offensive talent right someone like a Braden Point let's say just let them go let them do their thing. Do what makes you special, and odds are your offensive impact is going to outweigh your defensive impact, and I don't need to coach that. Lindy Ruff was a great example in Dallas when they had Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, uh, Jason Spezza back when he was good. Alex Radulov. Yeah, and I just I loved watching that team. I, I They almost made a, a deep playoff run. I really wanted them to win the Stanley Cup that one was year. Was that the year that Jamie Benn won the Art Ross, too, where he just kind of said, hey, you two, go? I think that was 2015-16. Was that the year the Leafs were tanking? Yes, that was the year that Matthews was drafted. Yeah, okay. So that was one of my favorite teams from a coaching standpoint because in the NHL, everyone's defensive-oriented. Everyone's afraid of taking risks. The best coaches tend to be the ones who really shut things down defensively, you know, tighten things up, the Barry Trotz effect. Lindy Ruff went the other way and really opened things up offensively and found a way to get guys like John Klingberg and Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, Jason Spezza into open space, and it helped them outscore their problems. They would have liked to get a bit better goaltending, but I like the fact that that was a successful way of running that specific team based on the way that the talent on their roster was assembled. So you bring up a good point is for me, a coach, you are given tools. You're given basically your toolbox by your general manager. And if you're a good coach, you should be able to alter how you coach the system you play, whatever it is to get the best out of those players. So you just brought up a great point with Lindy Ruff in that he has these offensive players and maybe he's a defensive minded coach, but he realizes he has these offensive players, so he's going to let them go. Very similar to John Cooper in Tampa Bay, where he has all of these offensive players that make Tampa special. So he plays into that, as opposed to trying to square peg, round hole, all of you offensive players who are super talented are now going to play defense. And the best example to me right now that was night and day is Dave Tippett in Edmonton. Everyone was trying to say, like, oh, McDavid and Dreisaitl need to play defense, and they need to do this, and they need to do that. Dave Tippett comes in and goes, hey, you two, just do whatever you want and outscore the issues, and I'll take care of everyone else, right? And and that's the thing is let your team do what makes them special, and you need to adjust as a coach. That's at least sort of what I think is, like, do you care if McDavid plays defense if he scores three points a night? Because I don't. 
So, shocker, I'm going to bring up an NBA comparable because it's my favorite league. Uh, as oh, much can as I, I love... guess who? Who are you going to guess? Steve Kerr? Yep, that's where I was going oh, with it. Oh, yes! Yep, good guess. To be fair, we did bring him up in the in the preview before we were before we started recording, but still a good guess. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's the a perfect basketball example. <laughs> yeah. So, in I want to say, let me get the year right. What year did Mark Jackson coach them to fifty wins? I want ooh, They won fifty games. They won fifty-one games, actually. Very good. Very good. (laughs) I wasn't sure about that. I wanted to make sure I got the year right. So Mark Jackson coached the Golden State Warriors to fifty-one wins. Steph Curry kind of took his uh, first step forward as a good player. Had a strong playoff run. They really improved the defense. Mark Jackson came in and really improved the defense, but offensively they weren't very creative. There wasn't much motion. The in the playoffs, late in games, the the the, the playbook was hand the ball to Steph Curry and he'll find a way to get us a bucket. And that's not a great offense when you have Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, uh, Draymond Green hadn't really been used at that point. The next year, Steve Kerr comes in. And says, we have the two best shooters in the league right now in, in Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Well, Ste- Steph Curry is, I'm convinced he had those two years where I was actually convinced he was an alien. Yeah, he like, broke the record for most threes, like, I think, attempted. And he, I think he led the league in volume and efficiency. Which is hilarious. He had over 400 threes. It's so ridiculous. That was either his first or second year under Steve Kerr. And what Steve Kerr did is he realized, I have all this talent on my roster. I have all this incredible shooting that I want to get on the floor. I'm going to try something a bit creative, and I'm going to play the six foot seven dude at center. That was at a time where everyone said, no, you need to have the big, bad seven foot center to win a championship. You know, the Shaquille O'Neal. Andrew Bogut for them yeah, at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, and Andrew Bogut, they they actually put him on the bench, and they started playing a smaller lineup. They called it the, I think it was the death lineup or the lineup of death, and they just spaced the floor. They had a bunch of shooters. They ran it up and down the court as fast as possible, and everyone said, oh, you can't win a championship, you know, going run and gun. You can't win a championship being a, a jump shooting team. <laughs> but he realized, I have the best jump shooters in the league. I have the best run and gun team in the league. We're going to play that style, and we're not going to you know, hedge it by being a bit stronger defensively with a seven-foot center. We're going to lean into that strength, be innovative, and really rely on our, our strengths as a shooting team. And they were a modern-day dynasty. Even before Kevin Durant got there, they were a dynasty. So I would ar- actually argue they played as a team better without Durant. They were much more fun to watch. And one of those things where you watch Steve Kerr in his press conferences, and this is a telltale of the type of coach he is, Steph Curry does things where, as a coach, he has physically torn his hair out on the sideline, and then the ball ends up in the basket. And he's like, you know what? Actually, just never mind. Do your thing, sir. It reminds me of like Connor McDavid. It's like, don't try to go one on four, and then he splits the D and scores. And it's like, well, crap. Okay. Right. And then <laughs> you could make the same argument of players who are being restricted. And it's very clear that there are some players in Toronto being restricted. I would argue there's players elsewhere being restricted. And... On the flip side, you look at somebody like a Jack Eichel, where Ralph Kruger's kind of come in, given Jack Eichel some leash, as opposed to trying to make him this like two-way center that he's not going to be, and he's off to a great start. You could talk about Patrick Kane in Chicago uh, when they were winning cups, because Patrick Kane sucks defensively. Like he's just terrible. Yeah, still, the still sucks. Yeah, I always find it funny when he talks about, like, oh, I really like Mitch Marner. Uh, he's got to learn like me. Like, you know, uh, the, the defensive like, side of the game is something I learned. What are you talking about, thinking, Patrick? At what point have you ever backtracked in your life, Patrick <laughs> yeah. Kane? Like, I'm sorry. What are you talking about? But that's a perfect example of Joel Quenville saying, okay, Kaner, I'll let you do this, but you better score. Yeah. Like, two or three points a night type of situation you better outscore your defensive deficiencies we're gonna get Duncan Keith to rip stretch passes in the playoffs you're gonna go long we're gonna really force them to back up that's gonna open up space underneath for players like Jonathan Taves or Brendan Saad and it's it's a creative way of coaching and I like it so what about defensive impact because the best example is obviously the Islanders they went from like being a team that gives up everything to Barry Trotz comes in and their goaltenders win the Jennings and they give up nothing and it's not Jacques Lemaire hockey, but it's like modern day Jacques Lemaire hockey. And that is Jacques Lemaire invented the trap, basically. Jacques Lemaire ruined hockey. Do you remember the New Jersey Devils of the early 2000s? Okay, yes, that was Jacques Lemaire. Wildly successful. If New Jersey scored a single goal, the game was over. Like, you were not scoring. 
I, I still think the league should have outlawed the neutral zone trap in the 90s. I know in the NBA, they outlawed zone defense when it became too uh, good. Yeah, exactly. In the early 2000s, when no one was scoring, they're like, all right, we're going to implement a new rule, three in the key. You can't just stand under the basket if you're seven feet tall. But how, yeah. like, you can't implement that in hockey because it's way too fluid. Like, you can't say, oh, no more than five people in the ne- or neutral zone at any given time. Like, you no could, one's going to. You could get creative with it, and you could say you have to apply pressure to the puck carrier, ref yells out a warning. If you don't apply pressure to the puck carrier. But then it's subjective where it's not like you're counting. That's why I think, like, getting rid of the two-line pass rule, which I think was dumb, um, really helped because then you were allowed to stretch. The reason the trap works so well is because you couldn't make a pass that was more than two lines. Ban offside. It's ridiculous. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm totally <laughs> on that train. Me, you, Dom, Jeff Merrick. Ryan Lambert is, like, always tweeting about it. I'm like, I appreciate you, Ryan. But let's get back to what we were talking about. Yeah, defensive impact. What, like... What did Barry Trotz change? Because they, when you look at that roster last year, like they were playing Cal Clutterbuck and Leo Komarov and Matt Martin and Valtteri Filpula on the third line. Like it, when those contracts were signed, everyone was thinking, "Oh my goodness, this team is going to be awful." And then they won a playoff Lost series. Johnston do a four-year deal. Oh, that was whoever that is something. But they've um, been good, and they've been really strong defensively. So what's I, changed? Well, there's an actual system in place now. That tends to help. Uh, I know that whenever you look at uh, a team where there was just absolute chaos before and you bring in some kind of structure, the results are going to be night and day. You look at Randy Carlisle hockey in Anaheim. Compare last year's results to this year's results. So he's a a negative coaching impact guy. The most negative that I can think of. I I, I can't recall a coach who takes a good team and makes them bad or takes a, a mediocre team and makes them terrible quite like Randy Carlisle does. His teams always get outshot, outchanced, and outscored at even strength, and especially the longer he goes into being the head coach of that team. You saw it in Anaheim. First year, they were pretty decent. Second, or at least his, his second stretch in Anaheim, let's call it, after he got fired by the Leafs. First year, they were like, all right, but worse than the year before. The next year, they were pretty bad. And then the third year, they were a tire fire. <laughs> How many Vesna nominations slash trophies has he cost John Gibson? I would say at least two nominations. John Gibson probably, I mean... Should have won the Vesna last year. Or at least been in consideration, but it's hard <laughs> when your team's a tire fire. Team is tire fire in front of you, but the thing that they don't realize is Anaheim probably would have been Ottawa bad last year without him. I think the biggest area where coaching comes into effect, in my opinion, is in the, the defensive zone. When it comes I to agree. Def- defensive zone coverage, because I feel like... Uh, offensive zone forecheck, a player's either going to be good at that or bad at that. You know, you can have a system that helps, you know, maximize the the space that you're prov- creating as a team or, or taking away as a Or you can only, like, you can only impact the game offensively so much. At the end of the day, you're going to need somebody like a Sebastian Ajo or a Mikhail Granlin to make a play. But if you looked at the New York Islanders before Barry Trotz was there, and you look at when the other team had possession in the offensive zone, it was chaos. Everyone in the Islanders was like running around. No one knew where to oh, be. Oh, it was a mess. They were giving up cross-ice passes through the middle of the ice night and day. It was brutal. And then Barry Trotz comes in. All of a sudden, there's more structure. Players know where to, in, in very Mike Babcock quote kind of way, they know where to stand. And as, as dumb as it is to say that, that matters. If you are taking away a passing lane through the middle of the slot and then you see a guy skating behind the net and then you look and you're, you make eye contact with your forward and they know that it's time to switch, it's just important communication, important positional play that's going to take away passes through the middle of the ice and those are killer in the defensive zone. If you give up cross ice, if you give up a backdoor pass, your goalie has no shot. All of a sudden, if you start taking away those passes, your goalie save percentage is going to go up. And I think that's something that's a bit more tricky to quantify with the public data we have right now. But it's very clear how structurally sound the New York Islanders are in their defensive zone. And the year before Barry Trotz came in, I would argue that they were the least structurally sound in the defensive zone. So that's the kind of impact a coach can make. Yeah, and okay, so let's talk about, we talked about offensive, defensive. What about things like if a coach is a really good communicator or if if it's a player's coach versus a hard ass. Like I think Mike Commodore has said his piece about Mike Babcock. There have been other people who said like Scotty Bowman isn't the most enjoyable to play with, but man, was he a good coach. And then you have guys who say Torts is a hard ass and some say Torts is a player's coach. 
And then you hear nothing but good things about Mike Sullivan in terms of his ability to communicate with players. Do you think that impacts maybe like a coach's shelf life? Because I feel like if you're a good communicator and you're not always a hothead or very wearing on players, I feel like they're more apt to not quit on you. I know that that's the common sentiment, and I know that we're hearing it a lot in Toronto right now, but I genuinely think it doesn't matter. I think at the end of the day, if you get results, that everyone talks about how, oh, this team that you know lost a lot of games has a bad culture, and all oh, this team that won a lot of games has a good culture, and... I think that there's the the mistake of implying, you know, causation when it's really just correlation. I don't think that yeah. teams win because they have better culture. I think that teams Winning that win, culture. you are feeling happier. I, I played in the the Eric Lindros tournament the uh, the other day with uh, Steve Dangle and company. It was so much fun. When we won a game, like and decidedly won that game, played well in the locker room. We were having so much fun afterwards. It was awesome. It was just, and this was a stupid charity game. But the the game that we lost, we we're in the locker room. We weren't feeling too great, and that's just. But kind do of you the way think that there well. is something to be said about a, a coach who communicates? Because like I've had, like when I was a gymnast, like I had a coach that was literally nuts. She got stuff done, like produced Olympians, produced tons and tons of NCAA scholarships. But like, I've never had someone wear on me to the point where like. I would just go home and cry or something like that. Whereas I had a hockey coach where I genuinely was like, I want to go to the rink because the way this coach communicates, I feel like I'm getting better as a person. I feel like I'm getting better as a hockey player. I feel like maybe there's something to be said. Maybe it's a trust factor where if you feel like you have a, a good communication with your coach or if your coach is open to players coming to him and, and discussing ideas Maybe the dynamic is better. I don't know. Like, I, I can like understand there's got to be something there. I can understand where you're coming from. And I understand when players say, oh, I, I want to, you know, run through a wall for this coach. You know, I'll really go to war. I'll go to battle for this coach. But then there are other coaches that some players despise. Uh, like Bill Walsh, when he had the San Francisco 49ers, he, oh, drafted, yeah. he drafted Steve Young, a quarterback, like or traded for him even though he had Joe Montana and it was to try to motivate Joe Montana and Montana didn't like it. And there are stories like this about a lot of players on his teams, but he saw it as a motivating factor. And when Bill Walsh has success, he's not going to get fired. Now, if you're doing these things and you miss the playoffs, you, uh, you know, multiple seasons in a row, or you're, you're get constantly getting bounced in the first round of a, of a playoff series, it's not going to fly anymore because you know, if, if you're pissing people off with poor results, it's a lot different than pissing people off with good results. Great and I also think there's something to be said like about that. There is no hockey coach, zero, none, nada, that actively tells his players to leave the middle of the ice open. And if you can find me a coach that does, I would love to have a conversation with this hockey coach because I've never heard of it. So Mike Kelly had point, an awesome tweet the other night during that. Uh, like that, you don't that actively tell your players to not play in the defensive zone. It's a choice. There's that awesome tweet by Mike Kelly in that Leafs uh, Pittsburgh uh, game the other night where he's like, "The Leafs have done a great job <laughs> yes. of not giving Pittsburgh anything from the perimeter." <laughs> there was multiple times where I looked up at my TV and Evgeny Malkin was just skating unimpeded in the slot. I'm like, uh, I don't think Mike Babcock is saying, "Please let Evgeny Malkin skate wherever he wants in the offensive zone." Like at some point, the players have to take a level of ownership. Of course. It's not always the coach's fault, and it's not always the player's fault. There's definitely a happy medium. But to say that Mike Babcock or whatever Randy Carlisle is saying, don't pay any attention to the middle of the ice, is like, no coach is going to say that. Do you think that some coaches are too defensive-oriented to the point where it hurts their offense? And let's try to avoid Toronto here. Let's think of another example. Um, Minnesota? The hard part is, do they have offensive talent? I mean... How else are you going to play with a roster built around Miko Koivu and Ryan Suter? You know what I mean? Like, those guys aren't very good offensively. No, but I feel like even when they had players like Mikhail Granlund and the good Zach Parise, like... Oh, I miss the good Zach Parise. That was, what, like, five Jason years Zucker's ago? Jason <laughs> Zucker's a pretty good player, but, like, this He's is awesome. one of those things where you're telling guys they have to play... Even Dallas right now, Jamie Benn, you must play defense. Why isn't Jamie Benn scoring? Well, because you've told him he has to play defense. 
<laughs> like I just mean, let him score. I don't know. To be fair, that you can. You, I, I, I want to say there's a healthy medium where you can play a bit of defense. Like you can be defensively responsible in the offensive zone. You see the defenseman yes. pinching f three. You go cover for him, but also Please find a way to unleash this guy offensively. The problem with Jamie Ben is that is he thirty now? Like I'm wondering oh, if I think he's it on the might. Side of 30, it yeah. might not be a coaching thing. It might just be his body catching up with him. Yeah, he turned thirty over the summer. Yeah, but it's one of those things where it's like you're not like I don't really care if Connor McDavid wins a Selkie because he's going to get 120 points a year. Like, I actually don't care. Jamie you know what ben, I mean? nine points in 21 games. Yeah, I know. I have him in our hockey pool. Well, I used to. <laughs> I don't anymore. <laughs> yes. Rupee um, hints for what it's worth. Fun to watch. Love that guy. But yeah, I think that's one of those things where it's if you have players offensively that are special, you can't teach special offensive talent. Like, that's not a thing. So someone like teaching Patrick Liney to play defense or Ovechkin to play defense, like why would you do that? Because in Ovechkin's case, you're going to put him on the power play because Washington gets two or three power plays a game. He's going to stand in the same spot. He's going to take eight strides per power play and he's going to score probably one power play goal every three games. I thought you were just saying like every game. Like he's going to score 50. We all know he's going to score 50. Last year, he almost did it in the last game of the regular like, season. Do you remember when Adam Oates tried to make him play defense? Like, I was going to bring this up. Why would you do that? No, it wasn't even him. It was Dale Hunter before that that was the biggest problem, I thought. Oh, my God. I totally... Yeah. Yeah. So, let's bring that up. So, Bruce Boudreau coached that team. For my money, the most fun team of the last 10 years. Like, that team was so much fun when they had Ovechkin, Backstrom, Semin, when Mike Green scored 30 goals. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was so much fun. And I think they hit the 300 club. They scored 300 goals in the regular season, which rarely happens. It's, it's oh, so yeah. difficult it's, for a if team If you to do score that. 200 and give up a 180, you're a very good team. Yeah. So, this team scored 300 in 82 <laughs> they games. Were so ridiculous. Yeah. And. I think they got bounced in the first round of the playoffs because they got halacked. Like they outplayed Pitt, they oh, outplayed Montreal, yeah. but you know, the goalie stood on his head. Bruce Boudreau, I'm not sure if he got fired that year or the year after, but Bruce Boudreau got fired because he couldn't win a game seven and poor guy still can't. But they tried to change the identity of their team. They said, okay, this run and gun offensive style isn't working. Let's make Ovechkin back check. You know, we're not going to give him too many minutes. Dale Hunter, like, tried to turn him into this 200-foot player, it, it really didn't work. They, it we, they super didn't work. They wasted two years of Ovechkin's prime and Backstrom's prime, and Semin, I want to say, went to Carolina and did much better there. And then ended up in Russia. And then didn't, and ended up back in Russia, yeah. Semin's a weird one, but they tried Still to turn Still one of that... the best wrist shots I've ever seen. Yeah, but they had Mike Green in his prime, in his absolute, like, should have won a Norris prime. Yeah. And, you know took away from what made him such a good player. They didn't get back to being good again until Barry Trotz was brought in, oddly enough. And he came in, he saw that team, and he went, yeah, this huh. team's freaking awesome. I'm going to unleash them offensively. We'll, we'll settle some things down in the defensive zone here. We'll play some smarter hockey. But Ovechkin knows Ovechkin. You know, I'm not going to hold him back. I'm going to let him fly out of the zone and get some two-on-ones. Like that, He's good at that. So he goes to Washington, Barry Trotz, goes to Washington, sees that he has quite, pr- quite honestly probably the best goal scorer in the history of hockey. Yeah, when and you goes, adjust for era, it's not even close. Do your thing, right? But then he goes to the Islanders, realizes he really only has Matt Barzell, and goes, you know what, to be successful, we need to play defensively. So Barry Trotz is a prime example of someone who's shown, like, no matter what he's given, he can adjust how he coaches to make that team successful. Great example. And in Nashville, again, like, very defensive-oriented team, that's how, where he got the reputation of being such a defensive-oriented coach. But again, he went to Washington and opened things up again offensively. and. Yeah. So the then, way that they attack off the rush in Washington, or at least the way that they did under Trotz, and they're still doing it now, it was creative. You know, they look to gain the zone and then make a cross ice pass because they have talented puck carriers like Nick Backstrom and Evgeny Kuznetsov, even Lars Eller on the third line. Like he had like a renaissance a couple of years ago under Barry Trotz, and I'm just thinking it's a perfect example of a guy seeing the talent on his roster, knowing how they should play, still fixing some some things up defensively because he can as a coach, but not getting in the way of what makes his team great. Okay, so then. We talked about hockey, right? And I know like you're basketball and I'm very much soccer. And there's definitely a couple examples in both sports. Like we touched on Greg Popovich and I think he's probably the god of apart from Bill Belichick, who let's be fair, has Tom Brady. Or does Tom B- Brady have Bill Belichick? It's I think it's like a tandem type of thing where Greg Popovich, you could give him a band of merry men and he would probably be able to do something with it. I mean, he's done it over the last two years. So. And that's a great example of someone who has a longer shelf life and that may be because of who he is in 
the locker room and maybe how he communicates with players. But then at the end of the day, this guy gets the most out of his players. It makes me think of like the soccer equivalent is somebody like Jurgen Klopp. Who, so which teams was, has he coached for people who maybe aren't familiar? Dortmund and then Liverpool. So, at so Dortmund, Dortmund is that team in Germany who has Marco Royce, right? The guy with the pretty blonde hair. He's been on the cover of FIFA. Yes. And then so they have Mario Goetze, who famously scored the World Cup winning goal. But Goetze's had two stints at Dortmund. One with Klopp, then he went to Bayern. And then now he's back without Klopp. Quickly touch on that story and how he was going to be the next big thing. Germany signed him, spent all their money on him instead of like a Neymar or something like that. And he completely busted in Yeah, uh, because in they had a coach that just like hated him and didn't play him. Was it Pep? Yes, actually. Okay. Yeah, it was. Um, but anyway, so while he was at Dortmund the first time with Jurgen Klopp, Klopp saw him as a 15-year-old and kind of brought him up, really, really developed him to the point where, like, the national team thought he was going to be, like, the next coming of Messi, and, like, it was ridiculous. His potential in the FIFA games was, like, north of 90. He he had so much potential. And then he goes to Bayern and doesn't get played to his strengths, Is gets injured, like, just terrible run of luck, goes back to Dortmund, but now without Klopp, they still play the same damn system, but he isn't used to the same extent, and it's totally different. And then there were rumors that came out that Klopp wanted him at Liverpool, and everyone started to get shaky at Dortmund because they knew that this coach could get the most out of him. And Klopp this... sees something. They're like, oh no, like we're, we're doing something wrong here. <laughs> yeah, and this could end up looking very terrible. And that's a great example of a coach seeing what he has. And Klopp's been at Liverpool, and... You can ask, basically. Any Liverpool fan, anyone who's watched the EPL, that was not a very good team. Like, in terms of, they were not a Man City. They had right? Mo Salah, Mohamed Salah, who was, like, a star. And did they have anyone else who was, like, world well, class? Well, he's t- made Mo Salah take the next step. So, like, Jordan Henderson, his, he's the captain. He took a, He's taken a massive step under Klopp. Mo Salah almost won the Ballon d'Or when there are two gentlemen named Cristiano Ronaldo and Leo Messi still on this earth. And he like he's turned players who weren't on the upper echelon of superstardom in English soccer to this juggernaut of a team that's like won the Champions League and running through teams in the EPL. And now it, there's, I mean, strong rumors that the German Football Federation basically is going to pay him whatever amount of money he wants to come and coach their national team when he's ready to because he's proven he can get the most no matter what he has. Did Liverpool win Champions League last year? Yes, they did. And they made it to the final the year before and Mo Salah suffered an injury in the final, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's back-to-back years making it to the Champions League final with a team that a lot of people would argue doesn't have the most talent in the world. Like, it's no different than... Uh, I don't know, like a man like they United don't have or any a... of the top three players on earth. And they don't have really. So when you look at it right now, Robert Lewandowski is averaging over a goal a game in soccer, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Leo Messi is Leo Messi. There's nothing that needs to be said about him. Cristiano Ronaldo, the same. And then you have guys like Neymar and Kylian and Bappe and whomever, like, we're talking about the McDavid, Crosby, Kucherov, like these people in soccer and this team has none of them in a sport where if you have a player like that it can really make a huge difference it's the difference maker it's like you play a 50 50 game you try so hard to keep things yeah. tight and then the world-class player makes a world-class play and you win the game one nothing right and there are teams who have multiple players like barcelona and real madrid and real madrid and has like Munich. three or four of them yeah, yeah have <laughs> multiple just obscene talents and then you have Jurgen Klopp who has turned Mo Salah into an obscene talent and turned Sadio Mane into someone you got to worry about yeah like he's turning guys that to be quite honest were pretty much done and on the downhill of their careers people don't know who these are by the way a lot of people don't know soccer these it would be like if a coach came in and turned Jamie Benn into an Art Ross winner again like that would be the impact I was going to say, like, that happened, but <laughs> right now, you mean. Like, no, but I'm talking, like, in where he's had a huge downswing and, like, no one really believes in him anymore to now, like, 
this team's winning championships. Is there again. a good example of a coach who's done that in the NHL recently, who had a, a player who kind of saw a fall from grace and then found a way to bring him back up and be great again? I'm thinking maybe Shea Weber. Is that a good example? Claude Julian? Under Claude Julian? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, that's kind of, that's tough to say. I feel like it's, it's harder to quantify in hockey because like in soccer, 11 guys are on the field at once and there's no line changes. You get three substitutions per game and the rest of the guys play the rest of the game. Whereas in hockey, like you're only really playing a third of the game maximum. But I'd argue that it's easier to quantify hockey performance because at least you're getting, you know, different shifts against different players with different players. See, you can, there's more of an independent variable aspect to it. Whereas in soccer, if I'm always on the pitch with this amazing player, how do we know that it's him and not me from just absolute results? I think it just becomes very obvious at that point. I would say that Crosby, who's 33, somehow seems to still be getting better under Mike Sullivan. Like, it's just amazing how, oh yeah, they're on the wrong side of 30. They're getting worse. And then you have Crosby, who's, and Malkin, too, like they just seem to be improving. Oh, Malkin, I would strongly disagree. Isn't Malkin like he hasn't been himself the last like he three hasn't or been four himself, years. but he, I think, like, well, this year, I think he's been better, and I think that might have something to do with the fact that maybe he there was a story that Rob Rossi wrote about him finding himself again. Um, but I think Crosby's probably the better example of like still getting better. Went into selkie mode last year, exactly. All right, so. That's sort of coaching impact. And I do want to touch quickly on Greg Popovich because I'm sure he could be a hockey coach, quite honestly. Like, if you taught him hockey, he could probably win a cup. Like, he's that good of a coach. Could be CEO of a powerful corporation. I think he could do anything he set his mind to. He's just such a smart human being in the way that he navigates his job. Uh, he's, he's a difficult one to assess because he started his career with Tim Duncan, who's a Hall of Fame power forward, one of the best seven-foot players of all time. But he found a way to make a team work with Tim Duncan and Tony Parker, who might also make the Hall of Fame, tough to say. But he brought this Hall of Fame player off the bench, Manu Ginobili, when a lot of coaches, when you have, let's say, the three best players on the team, they always start. Back in the day, all these players like spent their time on the floor together, and then they'd all go off together, and then you bring in your bench units. He was one of the first ones to say, no, I'm going to keep this amazing player on the bench, and then whenever Duncan and Tony Parker go off the, uh, off the court, I'll bring Ginobili on, and he's going to run that line. Kind of like in hockey, you know, you have a first line, second line. Popovich was one of the first ones to stagger minutes that way in a smart way. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, when he came into the league, uh, couldn't shoot at all. And I know that in San Antonio, they have the shot doctor. I forget what his name is off the top of my head, but he's someone who you know teaches people how to shoot. But under Craig Popovich's tutelage, uh, Kawhi Leonard became a top three player in the world. And then uh, there was the whole drama of the injury and he demanded a trade and uh, end of an era. But he found a way, he always found a way to get the most out of his players Danny Green, when he first came to Greg Popovich, was like a throw-in from uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. It was just a nobody. But he really turned him into a defensive specialist in transition who could hit open threes. And now he's one of the best 3 and D players in the NBA. You just look at players who come to Greg Popovich and they become the best versions of themselves. Rudy Gay was a player who just took the dumbest shots in human history. And now he's become a smart offensive basketball player. DeMar DeRozan getting the most out of him. Marcus Aldridge. I don't like the players that are on the Spurs right now, but somehow, some way, he's found a way to turn that team into a 45-50 to 50 win team when they probably shouldn't be sniffing the playoffs. That, to me, is the sign of a good coach. Alrighty, and I guess we will uh, end with that. We'll hit our uh, new segment. Ian, what's the name of the segment as of right now? As of right now, are we calling it uh, an extended shift? The extended think- shift? Extended shifts. I think it'll have a more creative name in the very near future. Um, wink, wink. But it, it will have much. something to do with shift length. Um, may or may not be sponsored. It, it just might be. We'll see. Tough to say. Um, but essentially, two minutes, maybe three minutes of just a quick topic. It's kind of an extended shift. So, I'm going to pose this to you. And let's... Hope we can actually keep it at an extended shift length. Can you quantify hockey IQ? That's a tough one because... Mr. Graf? What I would say is that if someone's 5 and 5 impacts are really strong and you can't point to any one dominant physical tool they have, 
they're probably a really good, a really smart hockey player, right? Yeah, I would say probably. So who who's someone that kind of stands out to you apart from like the obvious people? I was going to say, I can't just go to Mark Stone with everything. I can't do that because he's just phenomenal defensively. Who's a really, really smart hockey player? Maybe Ryan Suter. I think I used him in my Build-A-Player, right? I used yeah, his hockey IQ. Yeah, I think IQ. He's, he's very smart. I think um, Jacob Slavin. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yeah. Players who don't necessarily have great physical tools, but just are smart in the way they play the game. I don't want to use Philip a Toronto. Philip Deneau actually comes to mind. Ooh, that's a good one. He is a quick little skater, though, to be fair. To be fair. Yes, but he also makes plays at that speed. That's a good point. It's a really, he's right, underrated. Like People he, don't realize how good he is at 5-on-5 five five at shutting down the other team's best players. Yeah, I think he's very, very uh, good, I think. And this shouldn't surprise anybody. Nico Heuscher, um has just a... a his level of hockey IQ is hilarious. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you could look at players who have unbelievable talent, like obscene talent, and just can't find a way to produce or impact the game at 5-on-5. Five and, five. and, you know, that's like your Kevin Fiala's. That's your... Who, who are some other Robbie ones who come Shrimp to mind? Robbie Shrimp kind of comes to mind. We could talk about Anthony D'Angelo with the, with the Rangers. Maybe Jacob Chikrin? Jacob Chikrin's a tough one. I don't get to watch him play much in Arizona. I also feel like he's been injured, so like maybe that's not totally fair. Um, Quinn Hughes comes to mind as someone who is crazy smart. He's also crazy... Uh, I don't know what the right word is, but just crazy physical tools as a skater. But I, I think watching him, the reason he's always in those right spots is because he anticipates so well. Like His skating is very good, but I think it, it gets to be made even better because... He's able to read the play and sort of understand that it's going there so that he needs to skate to be there. So it seems like he's always there. and I think that might be a product of how good he is at anticipating the play as well. I was talking to Harmon Dial about this. Uh, The article that I wrote recently about the Leafs and how they need to activate their defensemen more on the breakout and in the offensive zone, he was saying, yeah, the the Canucks have done an amazing job of that this year. They have. And my theory is that I think it it starts with Quinn Hughes, other defensemen kind of seeing that and going, wow, this guy just, he'll make a pass at the blue line to a forward and then skate in behind him. So like make a a quick kind of give and go. And now Quinn Hughes is going to be a forward for the next five or 10 seconds. I think that can feed off on other players. And you're seeing guys like Tyler Myers, Alex Edler, Troy Stetcher do it a bit more often. I don't think that you can necessarily quantify hockey IQ, but I think you can have, like you said, right off the top, which is, if you're seeing positive or negative impact that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with physical tools, it might point to the hockey IQ. Or just straight-up defense, which is the other side of the game that we tend to forget about, but it matters. Anyways, we don't want this to turn into a... We don't want this to turn into, like, a three-minute shift where we end up taking a penalty, so we should probably get off the ice here. Yeah, we probably should go for a line change and let, like, Connor McDavid come on the ice or something. I broke my stick a while ago, and I'm just standing around here doing nothing. You know? Ooh, that's not good, because we should talk about how people shouldn't be playing without hockey sticks at some point. That's a, like, one of my biggest pet peeves, but we'll oh, save that God, for another I day. Oh, God, I hate it. Yeah, just you know what? Bench. We're going to get into that. We are going to get into that. If you're in the first or third period, you're right there. Just go to the bench. Second period, I'll, I'll listen to that argument, because the bench is so far Okay, away. you know what? We're talking about this, maybe. this That'll be like a five-minute major penalty kill shift that we'll do. Okay. Are, are we doing it now or are we doing it later? No, we'll do that a different podcast. All right. Sounds great. All right. Um, Let's get to the mailbag. Yeah. All right. You want to kick off the mailbag here? What are we going to start with? What's what's the first big question you wanted to touch on? Oh, is Miko Koskinen overpaid? Is Miko Koskinen overpaid? I mean, yes, obviously. <laughs> I feel like he could have won He was overpaid everything. on his first contract. Yeah, like... Do you remember when he was signed out of Russia? And I'm thinking, why isn't he signing to like you know the one year one million dollar contract that everyone else signs to? He got that one year two and a half million dollar contract when he was an unproven commodity at the NHL level. And I'm just thinking, this is dumb. This doesn't make any sense. And then he needed to get more than that on his next contract. And I'm just thinking, you screwed yourself over with the first contract negotiation. Now you're signing him to a how many years was it? Was it three years at four and a half million? Mm, yes. And by the way, he's seven and one right now oh seven one and two so okay, he's played 10 games he, are we sure he's seven good? one and two are we sure but he's good? i'm not sure like he's got a 921 and a goal saved above average of 
Yeah, but, but well, I'm still not sure if he's I'm good. I'm still not sold on the fact that he's good. Mike Snow and, might be better than him. And I'm still not sold on the fact that he's $4.5 million good. I don't know. I just... I'm happy like, for Edmonton because I want them to make the playoffs. I want to see Connor oh yeah. in meaningful hockey games. It should be but, a crime if the Oilers aren't in the playoffs. But it was such an unnecessarily risky contract that even if it ends up paying off, you probably should have got him for cheaper. Yeah, it was still a risk that didn't need to be taken. Like, if you look at his numbers last year, 25, 21, and 6, a save percentage below league average. Exciting wins and losses, by the way, and we're talking about goaltending. They have- I know. No, no, no. I'm going through the entire stat line here. We, you and I both agree that wins is a stupid stat. Yet you started with it. I'm reading his stat line <laughs> on hockey reference, and it happens to be the first thing they list. It's like me citing plus minus. Oh my god, I hate that stat. But he had, okay, so he had a 906 save percentage, not good enough. Um, he only had a quality start 47% of the time, not Is that good, good I don't know that stat very well. It, basically, did you give, give your team a chance to win, is essentially what it is. What, where are most goalies in that stat? Are they in like the 60 range? Mm, 60 to 70, yeah. Okay. Um, and then goal saved above average of negative 6. He was signed halfway through the year and then just plummeted right afterwards. And that's why you don't sign a goaltender after, what was it, like 20 or 30 games at the NHL level? It's just don't do it. Don't sign a goalie to a long-term deal on a tiny sample. More often than not, you're going to be regretting it. Then again, the Leafs got Frederick Anderson off of not the biggest sample in the world, and he's been fantastic. But he did play, I think, 125 games at the NHL level when he was signed. So a bit larger than, than what Edmonton was relying on. Yeah, same league, bit larger sample size. Eh, I would say, like, okay. I mean, that was definitely like a gamble, but obviously it's turned out to be a, a great gamble. This Koskinen situation, I mean, considering that he's 31 years old, at the time you sign that contract, which is generally not a time that goaltenders are getting better or really any players. Curtis McElhaney, baby. Peaking I was going to say, like, that's the only one I can think of. It's the only goalie I can think of. Because, Dwayne like, Rollison, maybe? Back Corey Schneider literally got put on waivers this week. That's sad. Like, yeah, but it's he got injured. He's 30-odd years old, and you're just not, you're not getting better. He hasn't been good for, what, three years now? Yeah, and the fact that he's had hip injuries doesn't help. This year, 8.52. Last year, 9.03. The year before that, 9.07. The year before that, 9.08. That was in 2016-17 he had a 9.08. His last good year was the 2015-2016 season. It's sad when you see goalies fall from grace, but Corey Schneider just hasn't been the same goalie since 2016. It's really sad. So we agree that Miko Koskinen's overpaid? Well, I mean, we could have had this talk a while ago, but hopefully we look wrong. I, I'd love for Edmonton to have half-decent goaltending for once so that Connor McDavid can be in the playoffs. Listen, if I end up on freezing cold takes because Miko Koskinen somehow turns into, like, a Yaroslav Halak type of goaltender and it means Connor McDavid wins a Stanley Cup, then, like, you know what? On freezing cold takes, I'm gonna be. That works for me. Do we have any more mailbag questions we wanted to get to before we get out of here? Yeah, this is probably my one of my favorite questions we've ever gotten. Uh-oh. Would you support removing the shootout in favor of continuous three-on-three, even if it meant that in the playoffs it went to three-on-three in overtime? Playoff three-on-three is stupid. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so this is that's my opinion, too. The playoffs are the playoffs. You, you have to win playing hockey. Like, you're not winning playing five uh, three-on-three, and you sure as hell aren't winning in the shootout. Like, the way that IHF does it in the gold medal and bronze medal games, I think, is ridiculous. You should have to play until... At the gold medal game, like, wh- where do you have to be after that? Play until someone scores, for God's sake. Like, this can't be that hard. Can, can I... I have a hot take. I don't know if this is a hot take. Bring back ties. I'm sick of this loser point. I'm sick of watching teams play the last 10 minutes of a third period and slow the game down like I'm watching the Minnesota Wild play or the Minnesota Wild. Or you make Wild. every game a three-point game. If you win in regulation, it's three points. If you win in overtime, it's two. And if you win in a shootout, it's only one because I hate the shootout. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, you make every game... <laughs> I know, If you're going to keep I'm, it, you make every game a three-point game. You yeah, know what I I'm saying? That. That's probably fair. And then shootout after, what, 10 minutes? I feel like 10 minutes wouldn't kill you. 
three on three overtime? Well, I also think there needs to be like a shot clock implemented in three on three overtime because now teams are just ragging the puck and playing this possession. It's not as run and gun. And like, it's just not That's nearly as idea. much fun anymore. What would the shot clock be? 20 seconds? You go 24 like the NBA. No, I'd say just keep it at a flat 20. Okay. That's enough time for you to change and rush up the ice because I have seen skaters skate up the ice in four seconds flat. So that's why I'm wondering if like maybe it should be 15 instead of 20. No, like I think I think 20 is fair enough. Um, what happens if you don't shoot? Then like it's a whistle. And then what? Like the other team should get off. possession. Like there should be a real, I guess. No, see, like you couldn't do that. It would have to be a face off. Yeah, but then if that's the case, I might hold on to the puck instead of risking just giving it to you with a bad shot. Mm, see, I don't know. I, I I don't think there's ever going to be a shot clock, but I think there needs to be some type of rule where it's like you can't just hang on to the puck forever type of thing. Like that should be a delay of game penalty. But the loser point needs to go. It's very cl- like if I oh, was taking over the NHL today, so there's like a list of ten things I do. Number one has to be the loser point. It ruins the regular season. The last five yeah. minutes of an NBA game are the most fun thing ever because everyone's They're also the longest. Shut up. <laughs> That's the last. Like, I literally minute. it took me twenty minutes to watch the last four minutes of a game the other day, and I was like, I can't do it. Okay, but the last five minutes of a close NBA game in the regular season is really fun to watch. Well, no, because then you're watching fouling, and it's like, I hate it. (sighs) If it's just shooting, like, if the Golden State Warriors are in a close game, then you sign me up every day of the week. Okay, Rachel, both teams are trying very, very hard in the last five minutes of a game. Playoff atmosphere, the last five minutes of a regular season game. The last five, ten minutes of a tie game in the regular season of hockey is like watching friggin' Beer League. It's garbage. It's literal, yeah, I would rather watch paint dry at that point. It's so bad. How the hell is that something that you're going to encourage as a league? This is why the NHL drives me nuts. Hockey's my favorite sport, but I love the NBA way more. Hell, I might like the NFL more than the NHL, and that's a problem. Hmm. Yes, I think you know my feelings on the NFL. Um, I but the NFL. I think I, I love it. I love watching football at the highest level. I don't like I, the NFL. For me, like, there's got to be something. Like, this the whole three point game thing is terrible. But to answer the question, if they change five on, I don't think they ever will. But if they change it to make it like four on four or three on three or something else dumb, like it doesn't make the playoffs as entertaining. Overtime winners in the playoffs are some of the most, like, my friend's dad is the goal scorer for one of the best calls ever made by a commentator, the Mayday Mayday call. Like, you don't have that moment with if it's three-on-three, because three, it's not hockey. Hold on, four-on-four, four, I've seen it at the World Juniors in overtime. It yeah, be but fun. those are also kids who are defensively irresponsible and have terrible habits. Like, did you not see that Sudbury and Hamilton played an 11-10 overtime game the other night? See, this is what I'm saying. Band coaching. (laughs) Coaches aren't allowed on the bench. (laughs) My old Sudbury boss is the coach in Hamilton, and I I can't even imagine what was going through his head. Because he loves offense, but that's a little too much offense. A lot of offense. A lot of offense for both teams. But, okay, so we don't want it in the playoffs. Because to me, if you're going to win in the playoffs, like if you're winning the Stanley Cup and you're playing seven-game series and guys are playing with punctured lungs and separated shoulders and broken limbs torn acl torn acls like you should have to win it playing five on five or by earning a penalty and then scoring on the power play we both know that penalties don't exist in overtime Uh, you could actually assault someone by the letter of the law and it would not be a penalty. There's some great the research playoffs. that shows that as you go later into a playoff series, like Game Six, Game Seven, there are fewer penalties called because I guess referees. Have you don't seen want- that that meme where it's like NHL regular season rules or like preseason rules is like a, a giant book, and then regular season is like a novel, and then playoffs it's it's basically like two sheets of paper, and then it's like Stanley Cup final. It's just shreds of paper. <laughs> yeah, no one really knows what the rules are in the playoffs, but fun fact, penalty rates don't change drastically from the regular season to the playoffs. So it's what just, that the penalty standard does, so yeah. you, what, what you're doing in the regular season, or let's say you, you hit someone without the puck in the regular season, you get an interference call for it. Well, do you? I mean, was that Charlie <laughs> McAvoy who laid out? I forget who yeah. it was. Wait. Or Zidane Chara basically like seven times a game. 
Zidane Chara in the playoffs is is yeah okay back he's to just, being prime Zidane Chara because he can just harass you after you dump the puck in. You could cross check someone in the face and not get a penalty in the playoffs. Like it is objectively hilarious. And this is why people say that physicality and, and all that matters more in the playoffs because you can get away with more of it. But you know what's and so if funny? If you're doing is, it and the other team isn't, you get a competitive advantage from it. So that, you know what's that so funny matter. is like you can do all of like you could literally assault someone battery and not get a penalty but if you shoot the puck over the glass you are getting two minutes too bad like it just it's it's unbelievable how use the icing rule use the icing rule for puck over glass it would it would force referees to call actual infractions and make the game better all right so what are we going to do in the regular season do we just ban the shootout altogether Eh, maybe after 10 minutes 10 minutes of three on three but this loser point drives me nuts yeah, I say we have to do away with the loser point, or what you have to do is every game is a three-point game. So if you win in regulation, you get three points. Or my idea as an old man, bring back ties. What's wrong with a good old tie? And every, but, Yeah, so everyone gets one point. Everyone goes home unhappy. You know what? You, you <laughs> wanted to win that game? Maybe you should have tried harder the last five minutes of the third. Maybe we get an exciting brand or of no, hockey. Or you no, you have overtime, but then there's... like. If I'm you, saying end it. I'm saying end it in, oh, at, no, 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 at, no. at the buzzer. No, because then the last five minutes of the game actually matter. Okay. Do they, though? Not right now. Know. Not right now. They might. You, you, we've never had a, a system that actually had ties until before the lockout, and that was back when the game was slug and tug. I, I feel like with this speedy brand of hockey, <laughs> if you have a team that... You could water ski on a guy and not get a penalty. The slug and tug era, the Scott Hannon era, the Darian Hatcher era, whatever you want to call it. But since the the lockout, that's when the three point, that's when the the loser point came into effect, right after oh four oh five. Yeah, yeah, and we've had a speedier, more dynamic brand of hockey since then, but we've never had it with actual ties and regulation. I'd be so curious to see what the last five or ten minutes of the third would look like in a tie game with two teams that are genuinely fighting for points in the standings. You don't want that other team to get one point, so you might be going a lot harder to win the game. It could be more interesting. That's my argument for the tie. Okay, so just ban overtime in the shootouts. It's, there, there's, no, there's a solid argument for it, I think, that we're all avoiding because no one likes ties. I think that there can be beauty in a tie because you want to avoid it and play good hockey. Well, there's other hockey. sports that have ties. Like, well, yeah, but people hate soccer. Hockey fans hate soccer. People hate soccer. It is literally the most popular sport on earth. I bet you, like, if you told most hockey fans soccer would be their least favorite of the major sports. Yeah, because because people are like the players are soft and this and that. Like, oh my god! I the the amount of times I have to listen to this being like a soccer fan and a hockey fan is nauseating. Well, maybe like, if I, Ronaldo I, wasn't such a little baby and like grabbing the wrong foot after he gets taken down. Or like Neymar literally rolling 17 times off the field. Like, that's embarrassing. But then you have someone like Schweinsteiger who is bleeding out of his eye socket as the Germans are winning the World Cup but like refuses to go down and get medical attention. That's my kind of player. I like that guy. I mean, he's my <laughs> favorite player ever. But like it's it's one of those things where it's like if you're a prima donna player then like you go down like Ari and Robin famously like just dove everywhere Ronaldo the same but then you have guys who are like bleeding from various parts of their body or like having heart attacks on the field and they're like yeah it's fine there are some Jake Muzzins but there are also some uh who's a notorious flopper Nazem Kadri's I would say yeah probably Kadri (laughs) all right probably get out of here yeah we uh we've talked enough I think and well that's going to be it for this week. Hopefully, we'll be just as fun next week. That's always and the goal. Yes, fun is the goal here. Because we have parts of our lives right now that aren't fun. <laughs> unlike unlike hockey's last 10 minutes, unlike the last 10 minutes of the third period of an NHL game, you know, we'll actually be worth paying attention to. Are we? Yeah, I think we are. Tough to say. Tough to say. It's it's debatable. Not in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we pack it in for the uh, the loser point. Yeah, we're just playing for overtime here. Alrighty, we will be back next week, Tuesday mornings. Sounds great. Have a great, right. re- have a great week, Rachel. Try not to get too injured. Uh, I know that you have an exam coming up next week, but you actually have, a, I want to say somewhat of a week off here where you're not like doing crazy stuff, so try to enjoy it. 
yeah, I'm actually like super like one assignment due on Thursday and then next week's like a breeze and then I have four exams in a week. So <laughs> we'll see. I mean, this there podcast, it is. There it I is. love That's it. Your, I your feel PDO like regressing back to the mean. Yeah. Oh, big time. But then December, like we could record 70 podcasts and I would be a merry old, just happy human being because I won't have any schoolwork. That's always the goal. All right, let's get out of here. Take care, Rachel. We'll talk next week. Sounds good. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.